Doug Scheiding of Row Cookers, baseball fan and barbecue world champion. You are listening to the Baseball and Barbecue Show with Lynn and Jeff. podcast and if you like barbecue and you like baseball then you have to listen to baseball and bbq with jeff and lynn they always have the best guests from the world of baseball and the world of barbecue all in one little package so check it out baseball and bbq with lynn and jeff okay guys take it away Welcome to Baseball and BBQ episode number 141. I'm Jeff Cohen, along with my co-host, Leonard Hollywood Abraman. And we welcome you to our show. How are you doing, Leonard? Jeff, um, I'm good. I'm glad that episode 141 is here. You had said on the last episode we were going to have a surprise on this episode. And now I know the surprise and what a surprise it is. We've got two great guests. So before I tell everyone why I'm not happy, and boy, I'm, there's some things I'm not happy about. Let's just tell everyone why we are happy. We have Terrence Moore, who wrote the book, The Real Hank Aaron. And it's just going to be a fascinating interview with, yes, with Terrence. He was a fascinating interview. And we learned a lot of stuff about Hank Aaron we didn't know before. Yeah. And Ian Rappaport, who, Ian, yes. Ian, Ian Rappaport, football, football? That's, that's right, Jeff. Ian Rappaport. You know, Jeff, before I, before I, I, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, I don't know if I really said hello to Jeff when he said hello to me. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to say, because I'm just not in a good mood, Jeff. I'm not in a good mood. Oh, so boy. I hear a rant coming on. Yeah, there's going to be a rant, but Uh-oh. but it's not with you. So I should at least say hello. It's been a week. And the last time I saw you was episode 140. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Ian Rappaport, who is the football insider on the NFL Network. Why are we having a football person on? Let the me show? ask you something. Yeah, please. Why are we having a football person? Wow, that's weird. I could have sworn I just asked that. Maybe that was just, I, maybe I thought it. You know what, Jeff? We once had on Nick Mangold, right? Yes. Uh, who played center for the Jets for many years, right? That's right. You just never know when there's going to be that crazy crossover. Uh-huh. And our friend Doug Scheiding, who is doing the interview with us with with Ian told us about Ian and not that we didn't know about Ian Rappaport uh, we don't live in a bubble but Ian is a huge Mets fan huge yep. barbecue fan yep now that we've done the interview he's one heck of a nice guy heck of a nice guy 
Yeah. So that is why, because right. he's a heck of a nice guy. <laughs> and but before we do that, don't you have something to read? Yes, I do. Hold on one second. One second. Jeff, our partners at Bet Online continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports information. Find all of the latest odds, news, and sports developments, including this year's Wimbledon Finals, Major League Baseball, the latest fighting news, and even next season's early NFL futures. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BLEAV. That's B L E A V to get the bonus and get into the action. Bet online where the game starts. Now, Jeff, a couple of things that I, that I want to mention. One of them I'm not happy about, and that's not even my rant. And that is the fact that Emily Detweiler is leaving the Kansas City barbecue society that is the kcbs oh now would would we normally care if somebody was leaving the kcbs we might did she leave on her own volition or was she you know asked to leave who knows i i'm sure it was her own volition she took that she, she took them from you know what jeff she took them from cellar dwellers uh huh. To first place World Series champions. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. But we had Emily on twice. Uh huh. She couldn't have been any nicer. Yep. And you know that she's the sister-in-law of Ross Detweiler. Mm-hmm. Yes. Who I think, as of this podcast taping, is with the Reds. Is he I with think the Reds? He is. he is. I I just you know I we wish her well. I'm sure that wherever she's going is going to be much better off that she's going to be there. And I hopefully uh, we'll, we'll hear from her again. I'm yeah, sure we, that we will. We wish her well. Okay. And then, you know what, Jeff, I want to thank cutting edge firewood because we had Leroy Hyde on. We hadn't opened a box of their firewood at the time. I wish I had, because it is seriously like the Rolls Royce of firewood. Mm-hmm. It's like you open it up and the pieces fit beautifully in the box. The wood is beautiful. Their brand is on the centerpiece, cutting edge firewood. It is absolutely gorgeous. What are you going to do with the wood? I, I'm go- I can't do anything. It's too beautiful. I got to leave it in the box. I I gotta say, put it off- are you going to burn it? No, no, it's too pretty. It's too nice. <laughs> I, I mean, I want to, but, it, you know, Jeff, it's like when you get a meal in a restaurant, or, you know, and, and they serve it and you're like, how can I eat this? It's, it, it, it looks too nice. So you take pictures. And I, but I just like to thank uh, I'd like to thank Cutting Edge Firewood because it was very, very nice of them to send. And it's just incredible. But I will use I will use it. And then and then I'll tell everyone what, what I thought of it. And now, Jeff, should I rant now? Or should I rant in between? Rant in between. Okay. Why don't we get to our guest, Terrence Moore. Terrence Moore is a noted newspaper journalist who has written for the Cincinnati Inquirer, the San Francisco Examiner, and for the better part of a quarter century, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
He has covered everything imaginable in the world of sports. World Series, Super Bowls, Olympics, NBA Finals, golf tournaments, even the Indianapolis 500, and I'm sure I'm leaving stuff out. In addition to newspapers, he has appeared on ESPN, CNN, MLB, and many other media outlets. Along the way, he became a friend and confidant to one of the most beloved and iconic baseball players of all time, the Hammer, Hank Aaron. Mr. Moores has a new book out called The Real Hank Aaron, an intimate look at the life and legacy of the home run king. We are honored to have with us today, Terrence Moore. Welcome, Terrence. Welcome, oh, Terrence. Good to be here. I must say this was a book that was fantastic. And yes, as a title say, an intimate look at Hank Aaron. I will say it was really not about his playing career, as there were so many books about that, but goes more into the person about social justice, the passion he had, and of yourself. And let me just say this. While I thought the book was great, there were parts I felt were both uncomfortable and important to read as a person who grew up in the Northeast, like me, as a white person. I hope you don't mind seeing that, me saying that. No, that's perfectly fine, because that ties right into what people should know about the book. So why a book on, on Hank Aaron now? I mean, we know his, his, this is not about his, his playing career. I mean, obviously, there's some things about it, but this was a, a, just a, a great, great book to read. So why don't you tell us the process and why you wanted to read, write a book like this? You know, Jeff, I mean, you talked about this earlier. Uh, there was not a reporter who was closer to Hank Aaron than I was. I had a 40-year relationship uh, that developed from the time, and we got this poster right here. I got this poster when I was 12 years old, and it's still in perfect shape. Back in 1968. So I went from that poster to being an honorary pallbearer at his funeral in January of 2021. So, and, and it's all about everything that's kind of been between that. But to answer your question directly, it's the summer of 2020. And I'm talking to Hank, and I, and I said, you know, Hank, there, there have been all these books written about you, all these magazine articles, all these documentaries, but no one has anything close to the real Hank Aaron, particularly what I know about you. And I said that, you know, would you want to do something? And he cut me off in this sentence and says, yes, yes, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And one of the things that pushed me over the edge with this was I'm in the process of doing NFTs. And that's something that probably some of your audiences don't know anything about. Well, Google, okay, that's a, that's a new <laughs> modern thing. Because I got all these tape recorders of Hank Aaron. And, and I was just like, they go back like 30 years in perfect condition. And uh, NFTs will allow people to buy clips, audio clips of the, these uh, audio recordings and keep them for, for themselves. But anyway, I had the clip record, I had the recordings, I had the, my dealings with him. And so he, he checked off on it. And there, there was a, a little hip, hip kick up in there. But uh, then, of course, he died in January of, of uh, 2021. But it still didn't disrupt my project because of what I had and still have on Hank Aaron as far as his personal experiences memories, those recordings I was telling you about. And uh, 95% of this book, as I, both of you guys can attest to, is totally new stuff about Hank Aaron. If you think you knew Hank Aaron, no, 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 no. <laughs> you didn't know Hank Aaron until you see what's in this book. Incredibly written book. You call yourself the Hank Aaron Whisperer. And th that's <laughs> extremely <laughs> appropriate. You had a beautiful relationship with him. And what you find in the in the in the book is that as much as you respected him, he respected you and he trusted you. And I, I get the feeling that, you know, 
because of everything he went through and and probably he had a lot of hanger on hanger ons I'm probably saying that wrong but you know what i mean people that you know you know wanted to know hank aaron because there was that you know to be associated with him and and so it it probably wasn't very easy for him to trust people and you you he trusted you entirely yeah, you bring up a very good point here. And, and, and I tell you, I'm getting chills right now thinking about what I'm going to say. I'm, I'm a spiritual person, a Christian, and I believe there's no such thing as coincidence. And one of the things you'll see in this book is that I was meant to be the Hank Aaron Whisperer. It was destiny. It was, I was destined to be that way. And there's a couple of big buckets as to why Hank trusted me. One, he knew that I got it. And one of the things you see in this book, I talk about the symmetry between Jackie Robinson, who was Hank's idol, uh, Hank Aaron, and myself, uh, being a trailblazing black sports journalist, uh, particularly in the Deep South, the first black sports columnist in the history of the Deep South, meaning the first black person allowed to give his opinion on a consistent basis. And, and I went through some things that are oh, reminiscent of, of Hank and Jackie and that sort of thing. So he recognized that. So he, you know, he, he understood that. The other big bucket is this. My family, I grew up in South Bend, Indiana, one of the cities I grew up in. My dad was an AT&T supervisor, Hank Aaron in his own right, along with my mom was like a Hank Aaron niche, if you want to call it that way. And uh, so we got moved around the, the Midwest and, and various times. But through all that moving and then through the, the things that we, we experienced is watching my parents and listening to my parents, they were like my Hank Aarons. And, and plus the fact uh, they were part of the Great Migration. And what I mean by that, for people who don't know, back in the 1940s, a lot of uh, Blacks who lived in the South moved to the North because of the jobs. My mom's side of the family came from Cotton Plant, Mississippi. You can't get more Southern than that, okay? And my dad's side of the family, family came from Dale, Arkansas, and they migrated to South Bend, Indiana, home of the University of Notre Dame, little university there, <laughs> in the 1940s. And I mention that because when I talked to Hank, it's like I was talking to my my uncle Edgar or my my uh, my my uh, uh, second cousin Leroy or even my dad. I mean, because it was the same type of feel. So it was that you know we just kind of clicked uh, very well. And then the third thing, and I talk about this in, in the in the book. This was never spoken. This was never spoken. But as over the forty years, we obviously became very close friends. But we always understood what the deal was. Okay, I I could call Hank at any time and get anything that I wanted, but I never did that. I did it, but I didn't do it like every single time because out of respect, like, oh, I'm not going to bother him with that. Okay, Hank, vice versa. He understood that even though we were friends, he understood that I was a professional journalist. So there was never that line that was ever crossed. And it was like the strangest thing because there's been other relationships I've been in. As a, as a sports reporter, because I'm also a visiting professor of journalism at Miami, Ohio, my alma mater. And I always tell my students, when people ask me, they say, well, what's the toughest thing that you have to go through, Mr. Moore, or just in general, or people on the street? And I said, easy. You want to be close enough to the people you cover where they trust you, but not close enough where they think you're friends with them. That's a tough thing to do. But walking that, that fine line with Hank Aaron, I was able to do it. And the final thing I will say this, Hank had very few friends. Very, he was a... For a guy that was was easy to talk to and friendly, what have you, he preferred to be alone. I mean, he, he was pretty much a loner. I had very few friends. So as you as you said, Leonard, he had to trust you, okay? And and there's no doubt in my mind, and we never talked about this, Hank and I, but what 
from the very beginning, this is what sold him on me. Very first phone call I had with him in 1982. We can talk more about this. I did this, this series at San Francisco Examiner on blacks and baseball, which was huge and a lot of revelations, what have you. First time I talked to Hank Aaron about this subject. And uh, after I finished the interview, I started looking through my uh, clips and tapes and notes. And, and it was just sometimes he, he would say something, and this would be the case for 40 years, that I would say, I don't think you actually meant to say that. Because, you know, because I, I know if we're talking to my dad or my uncle, or and it's like, you know, sometimes, you know, they'll say something from the South, you know, that you might just misconstrue. So I called back Hank and I said, is this exactly what you meant to say? He said, oh, I'm glad you called and, and asked me that. And he says, you know what, Terrence? Again, this is the very first interview I had with him. And actually the second because I called him back. He said, in all my many years, you are the only reporter who's ever done that to make sure you keep me in context. Mm-hmm. So and just like that movie, uh, Sleepless in Seattle, whatever it was, I had him at Hello. I had him right there. <laughs> <laughs> he, he trusted you. Uh, absolutely. You talk about Jackie Robinson, his Hank, Jackie being Hank's hero, the symmetry there. You, you have a, obviously a love for, for Jackie Robinson. I think your dad did also, uh, re- just reading the book. And there's something talking about your dad uh, in a chapter called Hank, Jackie, and Destiny. You wrote something in here, which really, uh, it just, it, it's just terrible. It's a day that President Kennedy was killed. And you said your dad was uh, at work and these guys were just cheering. And that's, uh, I can't believe uh, something like that happened. I mean, I, 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 that's just horrible. Well, see, here's, here's the thing, again, and I want the viewers to keep in mind, destiny. No such thing as, as coincidence. Little things like this is what, what led me to Hank Aaron. And so I'm a little kid. Uh, Jan, uh, November 22nd, 1963, I was eight years old. And, and I remember that as if it happened yesterday. And that's always been a fascinating story with me. We can talk about that some other day, but I'm a big JFK assassination buff. I'm the original JFK assassination buff. That's another story. <laughs> but, uh, on the day that J- JFK was assassinated, my dad, he was the first black supervisor in the history of AT&T in the Midwest, one of, one of the only first two ever in history. So he would fly from South Bend to Cincinnati an awful lot, and that was uh, uh, the headquarters or one of the big headquarters for AT&T at the time. And with the day you're referring to, he's in this packed room, you know, with a bunch of other like white guys and and they came in and they made that announcement. And not only did they cheer, they looked at my dad to see his reaction because JFK had the reputation of being uh, very kind to African-Americans. So there was a whole lot of things like that in, in my life that I would see my parents go through and see how they reacted. And as time went on, as I started writing this book, it's like, wow, these things were preparing me for Hank Aaron. And, and I, I would say that people need to read this book because People like me I had no idea this thing is happening, and it's absolutely terrible. I, I felt so, I, you know, when I read that, I got chilled. I, go, I can't believe that people do that. Yeah, that. And then, you know, okay, then you've got the thing I mentioned my mom, you know, in South Bend, Indiana. South Bend was the headquarters for Associate Savings and Loan, you know, the national headquarters for that. And uh, she was the first black person ever at Associates. And uh, she started out uh, as uh, janitorial work and worked her way up and to uh, uh, work, file cabinets and those type of things. But anyway, she uh, when we moved to Cincinnati, when my dad got transferred to Cincinnati, she was uh, the only black in this in a regional office there for associates. And she used to talk about this uh, uh, one white worker named Martha. It was just very, you know, jealous of her. And 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 one day Martha went up to my mom and had this key and just 
held down their face and says, you see this key here? He says, I can get into your drawer anytime I want. And just kind of like walked away. Little mind games. And that's kind of like what the book is built upon. Is I talk about the modern uh, racism, which are these mind games. And a lot mm-hmm. of people, unfortunately, a lot of white people can't see it because they figure, okay, uh, the, you know, we're not attacking blacks anymore with uh, attack dogs or fire hoses or those type of things. But it's like these other little things, these little mind games that are, have taken place. That's certainly Jackie Robinson experience and Hank Aaron experience and I experienced and a lot of African-Americans experienced uh, even now to this day. Mm-hmm. We are we're talking to Terrence Moore. The book is The Real Hank Aaron, an intimate look at the life and legacy of the home run king. Now, Terrence, you and I are a prime example of people who can get along because and I'll tell you why. And you're going to you're you're wondering, what is he talking about? <laughs> you are a Miami of Ohio alum and I am an Ohio University alum. I there you go. Terrence is covering his mouth. But <laughs> but Terrence, I fully respect you. I have no. <laughs> never, never leave home without it. For for people that don't know, Miami of Ohio and Ohio University have a uh, a friendly rivalry. Well, we'll call it that, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I, I just I, when I saw that and, and of course, Jeff just loves whenever whenever we have a guest that has any kind of Ohio roots. And I and I have to bring that up. So I got to say this. I'm I'm going to bore people, but I just got to say this. Of course, my Ohio is better than Ohio University, but that's beside the point. (laughs) (laughs) Very interesting. For those of you who are are Seinfeld fans, one of the greatest Seinfeld episodes was called Bizarro World. Mm -hmm. And that very much explains Miami, Ohio and Oxford, Ohio, which, by the way, I'll kill you aside. It always gets a high mark for being the prettiest college campus on the face of the earth and Mm -hmm. uh, the, the great uh, poet, uh, who was it, Robert Frost, once said that that Miami, Ohio is the prettiest campus ever there was. Okay, then you have Ohio University, which actually it, <laughs> it actually is a pretty good campus. It's a pretty good campus. What, what I bring up is that it's just like the Miami, Ohio's got a reputation of being a very studious, you know, university. And Ohio University is like the party school, you know. <laughs> and then, and, and but the biggest thing is to go from campus. To, to downtown Athens, Ohio, you go downhill and to go from uh, uptown Oxford, Ohio to campus at Miami, Ohio, you go, no, whatever, you get, you get my picture. It's like the yeah. direct opposite of the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff loves how I, I, I bring the totally off track and then I rely on Jeff. Jeff, bring, bring us in. back. Bring I'm going to bring it back to the- in. Please. <laughs> I want to ask you about your, your chapter called Greatest Ever. We okay. all have our greatest ever. Obviously, you think that Hank Aaron's the greatest ever. And who can debate that? Uh, people say Willie Mays is the greatest ever. Who can debate that? I mean, some people say Joe DiMaggio, Babe Ruth, all great players. What you wrote in here, which I, I and I never thought this, uh, uh, Joe DiMaggio always wanted to be noted as the greatest living ball player. And Ted Williams, the greatest hitter who ever lived. I never bought into that. I always thought, you know, I always thought Willie Mays and Hank Aaron was, was better than than was better than uh, Joe DiMaggio. But you, you make the case of him, him being the greatest ever. I happen to be a Willie Mays guy. I, I mean, I was ten years old when Willie Mays came to New York with the Mets, so I just happen to be a Willie Mays guy. 
<laughs> well, state your case of why uh, Henry Aaron's the greatest ever. You know, and, and I tell you, if if, uh, if we were on this this back, I think I would win the debate on this. I mean, and I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm serious because anybody that reads this chapter, I would defy them to read that chapter and tell me that I'm wrong. And I'm, I'm going to give you the, the cliff note, note version, folks, on this thing here. First of all, Babe Ruth, easy. He's out of the picture. Anything prior to April 15, 1947, when Jackie Robinson wrote the color barrier, does not count. Because mm-hmm. They weren't playing the best players because they were just mm-hmm. playing white players. So that's an easy one, okay? Right. So then you're, you're left to, you know, people say, Barry Bonds, well, Barry had a little help, okay? <laughs> All right, and then, so really, you know, Joe DiMaggio, let's be honest, it comes out to, to two guys, Hank Aaron and Willie Mays. And as I point out in that, in that chapter, Every single category, Hank Aaron career-wise, was better than Willie Mays. You name mm-hmm. it, he was better than. The people mm-hmm. said, well, well, Willie Mays was a faster player. Really? Willie Mays, and this is the thing, I get chills thinking about this. I looked this up because I didn't realize this, so I looked it up. Willie Mays and Hank Aaron stole bases at exactly the same rate. Wow. Mm-hmm. 77% of the time they were correct. Then people talk about the gold gloves. Hank Aaron had three gold gloves in right field, and Willie Mays had 12 in center field. Well, okay, well, one, Willie's playing the glamour position of center field in New York, okay? <laughs> gold gloves that way, whereas Hank's playing right field at the time of Roberto Clemente, who invented right field, okay? Mm-hmm. So the fact that he got three is, is amazing in itself. Right. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> and, and, and great story, too. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I have a, a quick story, and, and – I was 12 years old when Aaron passed Babe Ruth on the all time list. And I was at, I remember, I remember distinctly 12 years old after dinner with my family. It was, it was some Chinese restaurant. And all of a sudden I hear cheers from the rear of the restaurant. And we go, what happened? What happened? Waiter came over. Oh, Hank Aaron just broke the record. We were allowed to go into the kitchen to watch the replay of that happening. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, 12 years old, you're a big baseball fan. You know, history happened. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, I mean, that's one of those moments that transcends baseball and sports mm-hmm. because I mean, just like we talk about JFK, everybody who's my age, remember where they were on November 22nd, 1963. And people of age remember where they were on April 8th, 1974, when Hank Aaron hit the home run record. <clears throat> I was at the Miami, Ohio. As a matter of fact, uh, last weekend, we had alumni weekend and the president of the university, Greg Crawford came up to me and he's a little younger than I am. And he's all excited about the book. He said, and, he, and, and it wasn't, first thing he wanted to tell me was not how much he enjoyed the book. He wanted to tell me what, what you just said, Jeff, where he was when Hank Aaron hit the tie-breaking home run. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what you always remember. You know, so Jeff and I have been Cub Scout leaders. Jeff went on to be a Boy Scout leader. So it really resonated with us that Hank Aaron was thrilled to receive the Lifetime Achievement Award from Boy Scouts, that that meant as much to him as any accolade he received, any award that he received. So, and that he took that award home right away and hung it on the wall. Oh, oh yeah. And Leonard, I'm going to tell you something. I had the pleasure of introducing Hank Aaron at least a half dozen times at various events and ceremonies, pretty huge uh, affairs. And that particular one, I have never seen Hank that emotional. And, he, and, and what made it so, so unique was uh, a few days before, I think it was the, the day before, he had come back from the White House and received a, uh, an award from the White House. You know, he was there with a lot of dignitaries and what have you. 
But it was just talking about how how this was the greatest award for him, and it was you know it was getting misty eyes, and I was like, I was getting moved because he was getting moved by this, you know. And uh, but he always talked about well, I shouldn't say always, but he often talked about being a Boy Scout about how that just changed his entire life in Mobile, Alabama. And he, he would joke, and that's the other thing that you see in the book. Hank had this tremendous sense of humor, just tremendous. And he, he would, we always talk about there's nothing else to do in Mobile, Alabama. So to become mm-hmm. a Boy Scout, that was a highlight of my life. <laughs> You know, and uh, and he talked about how he had to wear the you had, had a choice of either having short pants as a Boy Scout or long pants. But he said he always had the short pants because his father wasn't rich enough for they can afford the long pants. You know, but that was and quite seriously from his standpoint, he said he would not have hit one home run in the major leagues if not for the discipline he learned as being a Boy Scout. Wow. And and Terrence, you also. For 25 years, you worked as a as a columnist, um, a, a reporter for the uh, Atlantic Journal Constitution. And based on all the abuse that you received and uh, what did what did you call Dixie? Oh, yeah, Dixie Kratz. It's amazing that you persevered. You stuck it out. The abuse that you had to deal with for 25 years as you became more, you know, you, you ESPN, I mean, uh, Oprah, whatever, you know, that you were on. Did that abuse continue even, even at that point? It, it did. And, and, and again, I'll give people a short version of this. I was the first African-American sports columnist in history of the, of the deep South. And, and, and it means simply, I was the first black person to allowed to give his opinion in sports, but it went further than that. I was the first black male of any kind in the South when I came to the Atlanta General Constitution in 85, sports, weather, otherwise, who was giving his opinion on a regular basis. And that was not pretty. <laughs> I mean, I was catching hell inside and outside the newspaper because essentially what, what the problem was when I was hired, Atlanta General Constitution at that time was building up this great sports staff and uh, it was considered the greatest sports section problem in the history of, of the world because they were hiring all these guys and they had everything except for a black sports, prominent black sports writer. And I guess pat myself on the back. They saw me, you know, I've had great credentials, won a lot of awards in San Francisco, but they didn't look at the way I wrote. OK, and I've always been a, a, a fastball columnist, a New York columnist, <laughs> to put it in, in those terms. I've had offers of work in New York, several of them. And uh, so they thought I was going to be the type of black writer. Now, I would write about maybe a feature type column and I give my opinion. They write about black people, that sort of thing. I don't write that way. <laughs> and when they found out I wasn't writing that way, then it became like, we got to get this guy to leave. But they mm. couldn't do it easily because they flat out said they didn't like what I was going to write. And they would look bad nationally. So it was like these little terrorist things they would do through the years. And then people always say, which I point out in the book, well, why did you stay for 25 years? Because, you know, the point of the matter is I had plenty of job offers. I mean, New York Daily News, Newsday, this, this entity called, that first came out, the first week it came out called the USA Today. I got the call to be, be with them. Uh, go back to the Cincinnati Inquirer. Uh, I was good friends with the sports editor of the LA Times since high school. Washington Post wanted me, and so on and so forth. But the reason I stood, and this goes back to my religious con- convictions, when I, the reason I decided to go from San Francisco to Atlanta, I just felt this calling that I was, 
it was bigger than me. That was meant to go there to try to, uh, you know, the first black sports columns history. There was something that was kind of appealing about that. Atlanta, Georgia, you know, home of Martin Luther King Jr. and that that sort of thing. So it was it was a lot of that. And then Hank Aaron and Jack Robinson. And so once I got into to the thick of things and, and the terrorism started, because that's what it was, was terrorism, it was, I, I became more defiant. Like, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, if you're going to get rid of me, you better do it legitimately. Now, whether that was wise or not, yeah, people have their opinion. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I had people black and white was telling me, get out, get out, get out. But uh, just from my uh, spiritual calling was just telling me to stick it out. And the thing that's interesting is in spite of all the things that I was, was uh, the, the abuse I was taking from what I call the Dixiecrats, what was happening was I was becoming more popular. I became the more the most famous person in the entire paper, not sports, just in general. You know, CNN, MSNBC, ESPN, and all that did was make them matter because I was becoming bigger than the white guys that they're trying to com- trying to promote. But it, to me, it was just a destiny thing. It was something that I needed to do. And then the final part of it was, given what my parents went through, what my ancestors went through, what Jackie went through, what Hank Aaron went through, I just felt that it was my duty to stick it out. And you did that, what, you did that very well with dignity. Absolutely. I, the, the, let's get back to the book. Uh, the heart of the book is, is about perseverance in the face of prejudice, I, I would say. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I, I'm pretty. Oh, sure. Pretty, yeah. yeah, no doubt. In a chapter called Jackie Robinson, there's something, and you use strong language here, surprised me. And uh, you, you said Hank had a choice involving Jackie Robinson. They could show how much they loved Jackie by living his teaching, the principles, and said, uh, I probably read this out of order, but most, a lot of the African-American players in the 50s and 60s preferred cowardice. cowardice. I mean, could you explain that? Because I, I, I find that rather uh, you know, oh, sure. shocking myself. <laughs> And, and, and this is something that people need to understand. And you don't get enough uh, people talking about this. I talked to enough, and, and it, well, let me, let me back up. It, it, just a quick history for me. Uh, outside of Larry Whiteside, who's, who's deceased now, Larry Whiteside was the first black person to cover uh, Major League Baseball on a consistent basis for a major metropolitan newspaper. I was a second, okay? And even though I'm not that old, I'm kind of like, you know, Probably next to Larry Whiteside, the longest running black person to ever write, write about Major League Baseball for a major newspaper. I've been doing it since the mid 1970s, going back to the Big Red Machine. I was a, a, a backup writer for Big Red Machine in the 70s for Cincinnati Inquirer. So I've had a, a perspective of Major League Baseball from an African American standpoint, certainly talking to African American players, that nobody else in history has. Okay, particularly now that Larry Whiteside is gone. And I bring that up because. I had more than a few African-American players tell me back in 1982, and this is probably the greatest thing, thing I've ever done outside of this book, perhaps. 1982, I'm covering the San Francisco Giants, and the, I told the sports editor, I discovered a smoking gun for Major League Baseball, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But I wanted to do this deep dive into Major League Baseball as to what was going on with African-Americans. Because in the uh, mid-1970s, that was a high point of African-Americans in the game, about 25%. And 82 had dropped down to 18%. Now, jumping ahead, right now, 7%. Hold that thought. And so we said, okay, go ahead and just do a deep dive into this thing. And what I discovered was explosive. And the thing that was that I'm so proud of with the series that I did, everything was on the record. Everybody wanted to talk, black and white, smoking gun. I found a white scout gave me the scouting report, Major League Baseball, that had 
race on the scouting report, computerized scouting report. NFL didn't have it. NBA didn't have it. And, and the right cell said, well, you know that's why it's there. He said that there's a quota system purposely phasing out African-Americans. That's when I started asking questions. And, Jeff, this gets back to your question. I know this is a long-winded answer. When I started talking to prominent black players of uh, that era that played in the 60s and what have you, they were almost in tears telling me about, and this is how I can use the word coward with confidence, about how they blew it, that they saw in the 60s that Major League Baseball was starting this process of phasing out African-Americans that accelerated in the 70s, and they said nothing. And it was working on their conscience, okay, that the only ones that were speaking out were basically two guys that had the guts to speak out about anything, Jackie Robinson and Kurt Flood, which is another story. Outside of that, most prominent black players said nothing, okay? Mm. And that continued even to this day, you know, that, that, that black players will see this thing going on. So we get to, we get to Hank Aaron. And this involves one of your heroes, Jeff, I'm sure. Hank Aaron, I don't know, again, was Jackie Robinson. Jackie dies on October 24th, 1972. And Hank, being the Jackie Robinson guy, goes to Ernie Banks and the Willie Mays and says, now that Jackie has died, it's up to us to carry on his legacy for civil rights and what have you. And Ernie and Willie went running the other way. They don't want, they said they don't want anything to do with that because they don't want to ruin their image. And Hank, they said something about Hank. Hank said, well, I'll just do it myself. And I bring that up because, Jeff, I think that kind of ties into that, that part of the book. Whereas Ernie and Willie represented the overwhelming majority of black players back then, that uh, particularly prominent ones. They were they had a chance to stand up back then and say, wait, wait, wait a minute, what's going on here with Major League Baseball? Because only a few said in 82, uh, point blank to me, that at the rate that is going at that point, 82, again, it was 18%, 19%. And people said point blank, said by the turn of the, the century, in the 21st century, the number of African-Americans, you can count them on one hand. And all that has happened from the few people that had a, a guess enough to say it. One of the guys that, uh, that I think of very clearly, Frank Robinson. And I'm sure your viewers all know Frank Robinson, a Hall of Fame player, and uh, later the first black manager in history of Major League Baseball, 1975 Cleveland Indians. And in 1981, I'm covering the San Francisco Giants. That's when Frank became the first black manager in the history of the National League. Okay, again, already the second in Major League Baseball history. And one of the things that Frank used to routinely talk to me about, very emotionally, about how he blew it, about how he should have been speaking up way back then, but he kept his mouth shut. And I would give him some of a, of a break, but even then in 81, he still wasn't willing to say what needed to be said, you know, like a Hank Aaron. But that's a long way to, to answer your question. Yeah. And then, like I said in the beginning, that's why this is an important book to read. Absolutely. I was going to ask you about that quota system, I, I, the, the, the race on the phones, which I, I you know, I believe you. I, I can't believe it, but I believe you. <laughs> and uh, your interaction with Bugs, Bud Selig when you went to ask him about it. Oh, Bowie Coon. I'm sorry. Bowie Coon. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, now, now, this is this is fascinating. All right. Now, Bowie Coon, yeah, commissioner of baseball. When I was 15 years old, a diehard baseball fan, diehard Big Red Machine fan, uh, we lived in Milwaukee at the time. My dad got transferred from South Bend, Cincinnati, Chicago to Milwaukee in 72. He was part of AT&T. 
and big baseball fan and, and big, big, big red machine fan, the greatest team of all time. That's my story. And I'm sticking to it. Also. <laughs> um, and uh, Cesar Geronimo was not on the ballot. And, and my favorite Milwaukee sports talk show, they might've had the first sports talk show in the country, at least one of them. Boy Coon was a guest. And, and I timed it, you know, there's a trick to getting on, on those call in talk shows. Things. And I timed it and I got on. And I and asked him, I said, you know, hey, why is he on the ballot? And they gave me some political answer. I was like, okay, like whatever. So that was the first time I encountered a boy coon. The second time I encountered boy coon was in 1981. I'm at Candlestick Park. I remember again, I was only the second black person ever to cover Major League Baseball for a six, seven, eight year stretch. It was only me and Larry Whiteside. So I kind of stood out in the room. So boy coon at Candlestick Park comes to Candlestick Park. PR guy says, hey, Mr. Coon wants to meet all the media. This was during the heyday of newspaper, the newspaper, so it was a lot of us, you know. So we all lined up to shake Bowie Coon's hand, and he's giving everybody, you know, shaking their hands, shaking their hands, talking to him. So when he gets to me, he gives me like one of these soul brother handshakes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and one of these like looks like I understand, yeah, one of these, you know, was the first <laughs> And I said that to set up 82. So 82, I'm doing this series on blacks and baseball. This white scout slips me the scout report. Uh, matter of fact, as they say, I never leave home without it. I got a copy right here. Here it is. I mean, this is original scouting report right here. Wow. wow. And, mm-hmm. and this race right here on the scouting yep. report. Yep. Yeah. Right there. Yep. Oh, yeah. This is the one that the scout gave me. Wow. I need to lock it on, on the lock and key somewhere. But but, it, but anyway, I, I set up Bowie Coon because all these people are telling me about the quarter system, what have you. Mm-hmm. So I call up Bowie Coon and uh, somehow I got. I got through, you know, it, it took a little ways. And I didn't want to tell the operator or the, his handlers what it was about. I just said, I'm doing a series on blacks and baseball. I got a very important thing I got to talk to some commissioner about. Okay. So I finally get Boy Coon and he's, you know, hey, how's it going? You know, how's the Giants doing? So on and so forth. I, I don't think he remembers I was that black guy who gave that weird handshake to. But anyway, <laughs> you know, we, we talked a little bit. So now I said, I got to the point. I said, Mr. Commissioner, is, is there, is, is baseball trying to phase out African Americans? And he, and I was like, to, oh, that's preposterous. No, no way. We love him. You know, and that's what always happens in situations. He starts talking about Jackie Robinson, you know, Willie Mays. They were throughout the, the key names, you know, Don Newcomb, you know, whatever. So I'm letting it get out of the system. And I was, oh, okay, okay. So I said, so is there anything on your computerized scouting report that would say otherwise? So he starts going that road again, down that road again. Oh, no. I remember. So then he catches himself, perhaps remembering that he's a lawyer. He said, not that I know of. <laughs> and so I said, I got something to send you. So I faxed him a copy of the scouting report. All hell broke loose uh, at that time. There were 26 major league teams, and he, he sent a memorandum to all of them to tell them to stop the practice immediately because they knew what that was all about. There's something with Jackie Robinson in the book that I, I found uh, fascinating. We know what Jackie Robinson Hank Aaron, what 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 they went through, Jackie Robinson. But you always felt, or you always thought that Jackie Robinson at least had the support of the African American community. And then you you have something in the book that Malcolm X tells Jackie Robinson, basically, I I don't I don't want to use the wrong words or anything, but that he was a sellout basically, and that he was just. You know, going along, he was. Um, I, I don't know exact. I, I, it's in the book, but 
so not only is he getting it from the white people, but now he's he's getting it from uh, Malcolm X and, and so Sid, and, and Leonard. Okay, this is why it goes back to what I said the symmetry in the book. Okay, this is Jackie Robinson, this is Hank Aaron, this is myself, mm-hmm. and I put a bunch of other black people watching this because I can relate to this. Because one of the things that happens when you are a person of strong conviction, and I'm just, and this is anybody, but I just just look go from an African American standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a lot of people don't see, and certainly for all of us who have strong convictions as black people, when it comes to civil rights, they see the part where uh, we're attacked by whites. Okay, but there's also a flip side to it because Jackie Robinson not only was he attacked from Malcolm X, he was attacked by a lot of blacks for being a black Republican for the longest period of time. But when you look at the context of that, which I've explained in the book, okay, there was a reason he was a black Republican, okay? There was a very profound reason. And that kind of changed as, as years went on. Hank Aaron, what I talk about in the book, Hank Aaron was attacked by black people because black people didn't understand. We'll probably talk about this too. Hank, black people didn't understand when Barry Bonds was going after his record. They couldn't understand why, why Hank wasn't saying anything about this, okay? And that's a whole backstory behind that. Mm-hmm. And, and it got to the point that when that race was over, which I pointed in the book, Hank, who had very few friends anyway, he's 73 at that point. He calls me up. Yeah, I'm sitting right here at this desk, calls me up, and he, just, and he tells me that he had – there was many people that he thought were his friends that go way back, and he discovered they weren't his friends, the way they were treating him. He just cut them off, you know, at 73 years old. Then I can relate to that, which I pointed in the book was uh, when Michael Vick was going through his little dogfighting thing, I was a point person for ESPN. I worked for Landry Constitution, but I was ESPN's point man. And I said early and often that Michael Vick was guilty and he needed to come clean, okay? Because I knew what I was talking about because I had inside information on that. And I would go in grocery stores. I'd go to barbershops. I'd go to, to church, okay? That'd be attacked by Black people. I mean, attacked, mm. okay? So that's what I'm saying. There's that side of it. And and I'm not saying I have to get any kind of pity party going here, but it still is to tell you that if you're a person of conviction, okay, even if you take the race part out of it, then you're going to have to be very strong-willed, strong-minded, and in my case, when I look at things, spiritually strong to battle through, because if you, you got to stick to your convictions, because people may not get your conviction, they may not understand it, that's that, but that cannot keep you from doing the right thing. The book is called The Real Hank Aaron, An Intimate Look at the Life and Legacy of the Home Run King. One of the passages that I found, frankly, shocking is that Hank said to you, and I quote, the greatest thing that ever happened to me, the greatest thing, and I never mentioned this before to anybody, is when I was traded to the Brewers, end quote. I mean, wow. Wow. Please elaborate. Well... And for people who just heard that, it's not what you think it is. <laughs> it certainly wasn't. He was giddy to get in those terrible brewer uniforms back then. That was brutal. Particularly the road, <laughs> that mustard thing. And it just, just all man. What he was referring to was, and, and I'm going to make this a two-parter, or actually a three-parter. You know, and, and I got to tie this in. And remember where I'm at, Jeff, because I'm going to go off on the tangent here, and I want to get back to your question here. <laughs> okay. Because this just popped in my head. When I was... When I was going through these tapes, Alex, I had hours of tapes to go back 30 years. I just kept discovering stuff I didn't know. Either. I said, I missed that the first time around. One of which was, Hank told me in his debut in the book, that 
in 74, that was his last year with the Braves, and he finished his last two years with Milwaukee Brewers, he said he had a chance to go to another team, the Boston Red Sox. Can you imagine Hank Aaron at Fenway Park? That's a whole other story. But, but the other thing he told me, which I missed, was he actually wanted to retire in 74 after the Braves season. And, and to, be, to get even further down, after he hit the home run, he was done with baseball then. The only reason he didn't end baseball right then after that home run and after the 74 season with the Atlanta Braves was he wanted a front office job, which he later got two years ago. But the front office job that he wanted, they wouldn't give it to him. Okay. And he, that was one of the few times he wouldn't get into detail, the details with me about something. Because there was somebody with the Braves organization back then, which he left unnamed, that really got on his nerves. Okay. <laughs> so that delayed by, by, by two years. But, but anyway, getting to the, to, to the Brewers thing. When he got traded to the Brewers, you know, on purpose, because that's where he went into his career in Milwaukee, where it started with the Milwaukee Braves in 75, 76 season. He said the greatest thing that ever happened to him was the Brewers because he said spring training took place in Sun City, Arizona. And I don't know if you guys have ever been to Sun City, Arizona, but there is nothing in Sun City, Arizona. There's <laughs> nothing. There's nothing. Okay. And that's just the way Hank loved it. Because he said that he would just go to the ballpark, do what he had to do, warm up. He said he would go back to his apartment and he said he would do nothing. He said he wouldn't leave. He said that he was at total peace. Because again, remember what people have understand about Hank Aaron, he was pretty much a loner, you know. And again, he was he was one of these secret loners because he had a great smile and he talked to you. If, you know, if you could get him, he talked to you, you know, even beyond me. But if he could sit in a and you know and just watch a baseball game all day and not have anybody bother him, he'd be on cloud nine. And he was able to do that in Sun City, Arizona. He, it was a retirement and still is a retirement area. A lot of old people, you know, they're not going to mess with them. And that, to him, was the highlight of his baseball life. He was, he was a was the Greta, the, the the male Greta Garbo. Is that Greta Garbo? Yeah, Greta Garbo. I, I wish to be left alone. That was Hank Aaron. Terrence, one of the regrets of this of 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 our show because we always talk about people we would love to have on. We wanted to have Hank Aaron. I there was a point where. We didn't really think that we could ever get him on. And then, of course, we didn't pursue it. I, I always think that that he might have come on with us. But one time I was in Italy and there was a woman giving the tour and she said to everyone on the tour bus, she said, I was at mass with the pope and he shook my hand. So if you want to shake the hand of the person who shook the pope's hand, please do so <laughs> you we we never have gotten obviously to talk to hank aaron but i feel like speaking to you is the closest that we will get to that so i didn't want this to end without telling you how much we appreciate that and that uh it's it's you know we are talking we are talking to one of the closest people with Hank Aaron. So listeners, you must get this book. The conversations that you had with Hank Aaron, these intimate conversations are incredible. That that's first and foremost. You did all the heavy lifting. All all we have to do is buy the book. In the book, and I now I'm going on a tangent. You and I have a lot in common. <laughs> but you talk about his feelings on 
Barry Bonds. And of course, that would that came up a lot because Barry Bonds was what you know, let's let's we'll put the, the steroids out for a second. Barry Bonds was challenging and eventually did break Hank Aaron's record. And of course, people thought that you know Hank Aaron should have had comments and spoken on it and and been there when when he broke it and almost like followed him. He he expressed how he felt about that. And and so how did Hank Aaron feel about Barry Bonds? I know he didn't he didn't like Barry Bonds. Let's put it that way. He he was not a fan of Barry Bonds that people should read that in the book. There were some great stories about that Super Bowl ad. I'm not going to ruin it, but you, you got to read that. But how did he feel about Barry Bonds? Yeah, you know, I'm going to say there's two parts. First of all, as you can tell in that book, I actually could have been the Barry Bonds whisperer. I would dare say that there can't be another reporter that has gotten along better with Barry Bonds than me, which is so ironic given the Hank Aaron thing. I mean, I dealt with Barry since 1986. We've had some very deep conversations. And I only had one problem with Barry Bonds, which is I put in the book, actually. And But for the most part, he and I got along very, very, very well. But Hank and Barry, this is interesting. Hank did not give a hoot. That's one of Hank's favorite words. He did not give a hoot about that record. Did not. I mean, I mean, I mean, let me rephrase that. He was proud of the fact that he was able to do that. Okay. But he wasn't attached to it. I mean, it wasn't that part of his life. I mean, whether Barry Bonds broke his record or Ken Griffey Jr. or A-Rod, he could care less. I mean, it was just like, he just wanted to move on. And partly, he wasn't attached to the record. And the second part, which is huge to your, your question, as you see in the book, Hank was so traumatized by what took place in the early 70s and chasing Babe Ruth for that record. People don't realize that haunted Hank for the rest of his life. And, and he felt that every time he talked about records or that record, it brought him back to that time period. And uh, it was not a good place for him to be. He did not like that at, at all. The other thing is from Barry Bonds specifically. Barry Bonds, a player Hank basically didn't have a problem with. Now I say basically because, as you'll see in the book, Hank kind of evolved on the steroid thing. His, his thing with steroids, with Barry Bonds in particular, Hank's thing was unless Barry came out flatly and said he used steroids, Hank was going to give him the benefit of the doubt. That's the type of person Hank, Hank was with everybody. I mean, he wasn't going to, he wasn't when he's got to flop the handle and somebody said that, hey, you know, this guy, blah, blah, blah. If Hank didn't see it for himself or that person, he's good with me until I find out otherwise. So that part didn't bother him. Later on, he had problems with steroids, and that's a whole other, another topic. But for the most part, he had little problem with Barry Bonds' player. Barry Bonds, the person he did not like, <laughs> not at all, okay? And that should not be su that surprising because as a part of the book, we kept, there are two different personalities, okay? There's just two different personalities. And the, and the irony of all this was Hank loved Bobby Bonds, Barry's father. And I knew uh, Bobby Bonds a little bit, not as a player, but as, as a coach. And uh, very nice person. I mean, it's pretty well known. He had an alcohol problem, uh, Bobby Bonds, that, uh, you know, wasn't very good. But, I mean, he was always a very pleasant person. So Hank always liked that. But as far as the person, the the way he was, he didn't like him. So, and that made for an interesting dynamics. What you write in the book is a great line. You put it as Barry Bonds holds the record, but Hank Aaron is the standard. That's, that's, that's right. 
That's, That's a great line. Yep. And 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 I got and I got to say this. I'm not. I can't take credit for that because Harry Edwards, a famous sociologist, he's the one that brought that up. And for those who don't know Harry uh, Harry uh, uh, Edwards, Harry Edwards is the guy that uh, that uh, that devised the Black Power salute for the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City. That, mm-hmm. That's Harry Harry uh, Harry uh, Doctor Harry Edwards. And uh, so I was talking to Doctor Harry Edwards one day. And I said I said how do we justify this is when Barrow's gone for the record. I mean, how how do we look at Hank now? I mean, he doesn't have the record, but we know that it's tainted and stuff like that. And 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 Harry thought for like five seconds, he says, Hank may not have the record, but he is still the standard bearer. I said, yeah. I'm gonna steal that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna use that from now on. And I'm I'm glad you did. I have two two more questions. I mean, you've been very generous with your time. No, this is fun. Yeah. How the heck did you get through Susan Bailey? <laughs> oh, no, you know, and again, I like analogies. And for those of you who may not may know a little bit about history, and I'm, I'm a big history guy, I love history. But uh, Watergate, 1972, 73, that time period, Richard Nixon had this secretary named Rosemary Woods. And she was defensively loyal to Richard Nixon. And they had this famous picture of her on Newsweek back at the time, where she erased the famous damaging White House tape that was even more incriminating than anything that Nixon ever said or done on tapes. She erased like 18 and a half minutes uh, of that tape. Okay, she was famous for that. Well, Susan Bailey was Hank's Rosemary Woods. <laughs> and, and, and Susan is the sweetest person. And, and, and I always got to defend Susan. I defend her throughout the book on this. Susan was only doing what Hank wanted her to, wanted her to do. Because again, I can't stress this enough. Hank was an interesting person. I mean, if even I'm talking about even beyond me, if he was talking to the two of you guys, if somehow you guys got Hank on the show, he would be great. I mean, he'd be like your best friend, stuff like that. But you know what? First, you have to try to get him on your show. <laughs> <laughs> because, again, Sun City, Arizona, that was Hank. Just I mean, I would sit here and just eat popcorn. Watch, you know, that, I mean, he would prefer to do that. So Susan Bailey's job as secretary for all the years that she was with Hank from 76 till his death, was to say no in various ways when you wanted to talk to Hank. <laughs> but for me, and then going back to the, to the theme, everything with me and Hank was meant to be. 82, I'm doing a series on Blacks and Baseball. I got all these people. And at the time, Hank was the only Black uh, executive in Major League Baseball for Atlanta Braves. And I figured, okay, I got to get Hank Aaron for this series I'm doing on Blacks and Baseball. And so I, I dialed the, the Braves number for years, 404-522-7630. It's been that number for like 50 years. So I dialed it, you know, and, and uh, I get a secretary and I said, uh, hey, uh, can you come to Hank Aaron's office? So I get Susan Bailey. I don't know Susan Bailey from Adam. I don't know her reputation at all. Again, this is Spring of 82. And I said, hey, I'm Terrence Moore, San Francisco Examiner. I'm doing a story on blacks and baseball, blah, blah, blah. And I talked to Hank Aaron. She says, hold the line, please. It was that simple. Next thing you know, I hear, hello, and it was Hank. And it just went from there. That And again, that was not a coincidence. It was just meant to be. That's not the way it's normally done with Susan Bill and Hank. <laughs> but it happened that way that time. That's destiny. Exactly. <laughs> one, one thing I don't want to forget about is a story that Hank related to you about Hank getting knocked down. Uh, in the 50s and 60s, and Hank gets hit by a pitch by Stan Williams of the Dodgers. And while at first base, tell us what Gil Hodges says to Hank. Oh, yeah. Well, so so Stan, Stan Williams, people don't know it. I mean, he was 
very intimidating guy, you know. Uh, and and this was before Randy Johnson, but I mean, for his day, 6'5", 230 pounds, that was huge, okay? And he was a very intimidating pitcher, 3-0 count on Hank. And uh, Johnny Roseborough was a catcher, flat out told Hank, hey, better be careful, better be, better be, be ready. And next one just hits Hank in the head mm. and, and almost knocks him out. And this just tells you about old-time ballplayers compared to now. Hank said that he knew, even though kind of woozy, that if he didn't go to first base, that that would be a signal to other pitchers that the way to get the great Hank Aaron out of the game is just hit him. So, you know, he goes on the first base and he's at first base. And, and then and then, he, then he says, uh, the next pitch, well, well the, the next thing that Sam Williams does is throws over and hits him in the leg. Okay. And he says, Gil Hodges, the great Gil Hodges, then leans over and says, why don't you go over there and bite his head off, big boy? <laughs> and Hank said, Mama didn't raise no fool. He said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So Hank just went through the game. He said the next day he had a home run. But anyway, that tells you about the difference between ballplayers back then and ballplayers now. And also touching off a lot about Hank Aaron. And reading the exchange, I guess I think Hank had a lot of respect for Gil Hodges, who was finally, was finally getting his due in, in the Hall of Fame. Everybody should get this book, The Real Hank Aaron, Intimate Look at the Life and Legacy of the Home Run King. And also, if you're a member of the Hall of Fame, you get a book, a a magazine called Memories and Dreams. And parents, you are a you're in this latest issue talking about Larry Doby. Don't forget about Larry Doby. That's exactly right. You want you want to read about that. Yes. (laughs) It's called Second to None. Uh, Memories and Dream Magazine. Do you, are you a regular contributor to this magazine? I have been known to write more than a few articles for them. They want me to do more, but since I do 10,000 things as it is, I, I can't fit in on a regular basis. But I, on an average, it's turned out to maybe like once a year, I'll end up writing something for it. It's a, it's a very well-written magazine. Not, not just because I'm in it, right. but uh, very, very good subject matters. And very well done. To get this book, I would recommend going to your local bookstore. I believe you're a member of the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, right, where you can get the book. That's exactly right. Uh, if you, I, I assume you can get it off of Amazon, but if you rather you go to your independent bookstore, and uh, there's a link on the Pandemic B- Baseball Book Club to get the book also from a, an, an independent seller. And I, I'll also send you a link too that they can they can send go to me directly too. Oh, okay. excellent. Where I can, I can, and I will autograph it for you too for uh, for through this link. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us, Terrence. This has been an enlightening hour, and uh, we really appreciate. We got to know Hank Aaron a little, little more intimately. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, what in, a- in the words, in the words of Hank Aaron, this is one of Hank Aaron's favorite favorite phrases. Thank you. Well, well, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you, Terrence. Thank you, Terrence. Jeff, you're going to wait. wait before you say it. I'll say it. Wow. It's unbelievable. He, it was a va- fascinating, fascinating interview. And we thank Terrence Moore for joining us on Baseball and BBQ. Yeah, we really do. We never had Hank Aaron on. I've said it so many times. I really do think that he was one person. He would have come on with us. Although Terrence, I, yeah, I, you're, after talking to Terrence, maybe he wouldn't have. But what he went through his whole life, just Terrence Moore, fascinating interview. The book is is incredible. It's after speaking to Terrence Moore and doing this podcast. I think it's it's really it started when we started doing the podcast. So, Jeff, I'm giving you a warning. 
however you want to do it, if you want to, but I'm, I'm ranting. This Before is you do, I just yeah. want to let everybody know if they want to catch the show, you know, if they want to give us a call, <laughs> call 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our Facebook page, Baseball and BBQ. Tweet us. We have a Twitter at Baseball and BBQ. Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. Our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And as always, please, please rate and review us. And subscribe. Now, Len, is this a baseball rant or a barbecue rant? Oh, no, this is a baseball rant. Okay. Are you going to introduce it the way that I would? Now, here's a baseball rant. That's not bad, actually. That's pretty good. All right. You know, before we started doing this podcast, I, I could really care less about lists, ranking people. And where does this person fall? And where does this person fall? And now I blame the podcast because now when I hear people talking and they're putting players in certain categories and I don't agree with them. I get mad and I'm going to tell you what this is. I was listening the other day to someone very, you know, very famous. I'll give you a hint. Hey, Mikey, Mikey. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if anybody got it from that, but I was listening to Christopher Mad Dog Russo and he was talking about his Mount Rushmore of baseball greats. Okay. So for baseball greats. I don't have any issue with anyone ranking their baseball greats. What I do have an issue with is when you want to put Babe Ruth on there. Everybody seems to want to put Babe Ruth on there. That's fine. And I think he put Lou Gehrig. And then I don't want to swear by this, but I believe he put, I think he might've put Cobb and Williams. Okay. Ty Cobb and Tim, uh, Tim. Oh my God. Ted Williams. Okay. And that's fine. But as you heard in the interview with Terrence Moore, Terrence Moore said, you know, it really wasn't baseball before 1947. Now, that's not the player's fault. It's not the player's fault. The players didn't keep African-Americans out of baseball. But how do you not have a Mount Rushmore without either Hank Aaron or Willie Mays? But hold on. again. It's your choice, whoever's making the list. But then people called him up and said, well, what about this player? And one of his responses was, well, Ruth, Ruth hit the ball with so much power. He hit it so much further. Who cares if the ball goes over the wall? That's all that matters. I don't care how far the guy hits it. So what? Okay, with these Ruthian blasts, I don't care. If a home run, let's say a home run is 500 feet and it goes 700. The next time the guy's up, they don't say, oh, wait, you have 200 feet credit. 500 feet and 700 feet. Well, those are shots. Yeah, I get it. I don't think anybody can do that. No, but but actually, I think he actually said uh, Ruth used to hit it 700 feet or something. I, I think he actually said that, but he was exaggerating. Whatever. The point is, who cares? I don't care about that. How do you not put either Mays or Aaron 
on that Mount Rushmore. Now, wait a second. Hold on. There was another point that was made. Somebody called him and said, well, what about, you know, some of the, the, the modern guys? They're, they're stronger and they're faster and they're this and they're that. And his response was, oh, you can never put the modern guys. It's all the, the modern guys will never be on there. What are you saying? So, so basically, going forward, anyone who has incredible careers and seasons can never surpass or surplant Gehrig and Ruth and Williams and Cobb. Shoei Otani, one of the most amazing players I have ever seen. Are you telling me that Shoei Otani could never go on that Mount Rushmore? Not on, not, not on Mad Dogs at Rushmore, but yeah. Mount Rushmore. Well, I, I, okay, so this isn't really a rant towards Mad Dog, okay? But it's just a rant towards the people that won't, you know. I, wait, 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 wait. Isn't this what's supposed to make sports fun? The, the debate about who's better, who's yes. worse. Who, Are you? you know, yes. You're in a bar. You're talking about, oh, you know, this guy and this guy comparing this guy. This is my Rushmore. What are you getting so upset for? That's well, that's the problem. I didn't used to get upset till we had this podcast. And now <laughs> now I get upset. So something happened to me because we have somebody like a Terrence Moron who is talking about Hank Aaron being the greatest that ever played. And I can't argue with that. No, I told you heard me in an interview. Hank Aaron, you know, who can argue with that? Willie Mays is a great, who can argue with that? You know, pick either one. So then if you're making a Mount Rushmore, you have to put one of them on. If I had a, if I had to think about it now, we talk about players or pitchers or, or just baseball players, you know. I don't think you could actually, I think a Mount Rushmore for baseball players, I don't think it's possible. But I also think that you have to all this time, Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth. Babe the legend Ruth. of Babe Ruth yes. changed the game. Like it's being changed up. But the legend is, you know, he came out of the 1919 Black Sox scandal and saved the game. That's why he is bigger than life. He was a gregarious, bigger than life fellow. And it kind of saved the, the sport. The legend is the legend. And we okay. had guys talking about Babe Ruth before. Yes, I just, I don't, I, I didn't like it. Okay. I, I don't, I don't know. This rant sounded better in my head, but you know what? Leave the baseball ranting to me, please. Apparently I'm not very good at it. I'm just telling you, you know what? If the listeners want to let us know if they want to give us their Mount Rushmore. Yeah, give us your Mount Rushmore of, of ball players, either pitchers or batters or Either one. Actually, like when he was giving his Mount Rushmore Mad Dog, there wasn't a single pitcher on there. Okay. How do you not have a pitcher on there? I just know that in a Mount Rushmore of the greatest, I just know there is one of two. You either have to put, actually, Aaron or Mays, you could put, they could both be on there. They could both be on there. Well, and wait, you, you, you talk about Clemente. Clemente could be on there, but hold on a second. I was talking to somebody and I mentioned Jackie Robinson. And they said, are you putting Jackie Robinson up there as a player 
or his significance? Well, Jackie Robinson was a great player. I don't know that he he was not as good a player as Aaron or Mays. Probably, I, I I would think different skill sets though. But by different ahead. skill, exactly. That's the other thing. Are are you are you valuing power more than you know? Does a um does a guy who hits for a high average matter more than a guy who hits high home runs? Or you know what? This was this wasn't supposed to go there i i don't know it's way yes i agree with you it is going on way too long you're right and i will stop and let's get you can edit the heck out of this i don't care but let's get to ian rapaport and maybe let's talk a little about smoking and barbecuing okay yeah yeah, with nfl insider ian rapaport yes Our guest on Baseball and BBQ is the national insider for the NFL Network and NFL.com. A football writer on a baseball podcast, you may ask? Well, this guest is a huge baseball fan and a fan of our favorite team, the New York Mets. But he knows his way a thing or two around the league. He can be found on Twitter at RapSheet. And his most famous claim to fame is his for seven cameos. That's right, seven cameos in the movie Draft Day. And he knows his way around the barbecue, too. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Ian Rappaport. And we also welcome the person who made it all possible. To contact Ian, our guest co-host from Road Cookers, Doug Scheiding. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Thank you, guys. Going on? Thanks for having me. Ian, uh, I know we met through barbecue, so we'll, we'll get into the barbecue. But I wanted to start off with, and I know you like the Mets because you had a story when Max Scherzer was coming coming back from the DL. And I was like, oh my gosh, I could, I forgot that I put it together. So in my research, I saw, tell us about even though we'll leave Kurt Warner out of it, but your experience as uh, your experience throwing out the first pitch at the Mets game and having your wife catch it. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Actually, I was, I was going to the driving range to go hit some golf balls before rounds. And I get a text from my publicist. She literally says, are you sitting down? I'm like, (laughs) should I be? She's like, the Mets want you to throw out the first pitch. And like, I've been in some high pressure situations, you know, (laughs) like there's some, like the light comes on and there's thousands of people there and there's millions of people watching, like, you know, right before the first pick of the draft or, you know, there's been before you're talking about big news on TV for the first time, whatever. And I really don't get nervous like my stomach dropped because I was so nervous right away when she said, I'm like, Oh my God. I'm like, yes, I would love it. So we set a date and because it was, you know, because there was COVID going on, right. uh, baseball had regulations. So they were allowed to have people throw out the first pitch, but you couldn't be near any player. So they're like, you need a catcher. And I'm like, all right, like I could bring one of my friends, I could bring my brother. And I was like, you know what? My wife is a good athlete. She's a great tennis player. She can catch. I'm like, she should be the catcher. So I'm like, what do you think? And she was like, oh, God, I guess I should do it. Uh, and we practiced a couple of times. They, they told us that I was not allowed to step on the rubber, which is good because the one time that I practiced from the rubber, I ended up throwing a sinker and I hit her in the, on the top of the foot. Um, and it is a, a, basically it was a bruise for like four months. But anyway, I, I did it. I you know, went to the ballpark, got my Mets jersey on. I was already, I had practiced. It was going to be fine. 
And then like you get out there and the crowd cheers, they say your name and it kind of like gets like this. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you perform different under pressure sometimes. So like everything quickened up. So I'd practice like a nice smooth throw, but I ended up kind of like short arming something to home plate. It was fine. It was a strike. She caught it. Everything was great, but it was amazing how nervous I was. And so I was, I was excited. It was cool, but I was very happy that it was over and I didn't screw it up. (laughs) How much does one practice for this first pitch? How much did you prepare? We practiced three times. So what that (laughs) meant was we got out to the mound. She stood behind home plate and I threw to her like 20 times each, but like, I feel like that's substantial practice. Yeah. And we, and we didn't screw it up. So even better. All you got to do is Google Ian Rappaport throws that first pitch and you can see it. <laughs> yeah. I think it was on the outside corner. I'm not, yeah. but you know, it was yeah, close to that. Right. <laughs> it depends. Outside, it was the outside, outside for a lefty. Right. Yep. Yeah. A lefty. <laughs> she she guided it. She was he threw it right in. She framed glass. it. It was she perfect. framed it. She, she framed, framed it, it nicely. Yeah. Exactly. It was <laughs> it was non-memorable, not like 50 cent that you know basically exactly. was terrible. So your NFL live crew backed you up a hundred percent. That was and I'll tell you what, like it was the throwing it like it, you know, she it was basically like chest high and making sure I didn't throw it in the dirt. So, like, you know, let's say I threw it at her shins. And it was tough for her to catch, but she could have caught it, but didn't. And she yes. would have blamed me. Like, I don't want any part of that. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, are you from New York that you became a Mets fan? Yeah, I'm from a town called Chappaqua, New York, oh. which was just a regular town in Chappaqua. And then the Clintons moved there. Right. I was going to say, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a little known became, for something now. <laughs> yeah, it became where the Clintons live. But yeah, so I was, I'm 42 now. And I was six years old when, you know, the, best Mets team ever was, was rocking and rolling. And, you know, some of my earliest memories are watching the Mets when I was six and, you know, coming back from swim practice and having a playoff game, which should have been long over still on because it goes to extra inning. You know, it's like, so I grew up watching the Mets and 87 was not as good. 88 was good until they ran into Earl Hershiser. nineties mm-hmm. where they spent a lot of money and the teams weren't that great. You know, I'd go watch, Steve Traxel start on a Sunday. I had this had the weekend, the Sunday package when I was at Columbia. So I'd go to games um, during college. Like that is, you know, people always ask me like, you know, what team do you root for? And I'm like, I only root for one team and it's the Mets. There you go. We, we had Steve Traxel on not too long ago. Nice. Uh, yeah, he's, yeah. He's a great yeah. guy. And by the way, you're 42 years old. So you have the age, you're over the age limit to go to Mets fantasy camp where I, I went in November. And it's a great experience. All these old Mets there, Traxel was there. It was just fantastic. Yeah, I when I was in Boston, I played for an over 30 wood bat league. And it was it was awesome. It's interesting, though. I'm not quite as good as I remember I was. And everything hurts. <laughs> I was a catcher. So people always people were asking me why I had a catcher's mitt when I threw out the first pitch. I'm like, because I'm a catcher. Like, once you're a catcher, you're always a catcher, right? Right but I would be in legit pain after those games. So I don't know if my body can take that. Honestly. <laughs> the, the funny thing is when we had Steve Traxel on, we had Doug on because when, when we booked Steve and he said, are we going to talk about the, the, my Traeger? So we knew right away he's into barbecue. So we do our baseball part and we do some barbecue talk and Doug's answering some questions. And we were like, you know, Steve, we don't want to take any more of your time. And, and, and so he was like, but wait, 
I, I have more questions. So, I mean, so it was Steve and Doug just talking back and forth. And, and now they're like, uh, you know, they formed like a, a barbecue bond. I mean, <laughs> he's a, he's, he was a cub as well as a mess. So, yeah, exactly. Right. I tell you, if there's one thing I know, with all due respect to Steve Traxel, he takes a lot of time. Nobody <laughs> yes. took longer throwing the ball than Steve Traxel. So the fact I that asked he propagated the podcast was not surprising. Yeah, <laughs> I asked him about how he liked that that nickname very gently, by yeah. the way. But uh, so, yeah, let's talk about some some grilling. You know, you're, what grills did you have? I know you've got a Traeger and 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 have done some things with Traeger. But, but uh, how did you get into grilling? And what grills do you have uh, on your back porch? So I got into grilling. Uh, actually, so I think my dad had a smoker and it was like, uh, it looked like a a small refrigerator. It was like a vertical smoker with trays, gas, a vault, a vault is I think what they call them. Yeah. Okay. I I think that's what it was. And so that was before when I live, I lived with my parents for two years out of college, which was great, but also miserable because all my friends (laughs) were having finance jobs partying and I'm living with my parents and they would, he would smoke meat. So I moved to Mississippi where I got a job covering Mississippi state for the Jackson Claren ledger. And I got a smoker. And then when I went to Alabama, I brought my smoker. I brought, I had the same one moved to Boston. I had my, my smoker and I will never forget. Um, you know, you, it was really, then I would just smoke ribs right now. I smoke a lot of things, but then I would just smoke ribs and I will never forget leaving the smoker on, you know, like it probably a half hour into the cook. We leave our backyard go get a couple of drinks, come back about an hour later. So everything's still really smoky. And we see two police officers coming out of our backyard because it was so smoky. They thought something was on fire because it's Boston. Not really used to smokers. So when we moved to New York, I got a pit barrel. Oh yeah. Charcoal smoker, which I loved. It was so great. And it really made me feel cool because like, you got to like get dirty and you got to, mm-hmm. you know, there's no, I didn't use a temperature gauge. It was all like by feel, right? So I was, I thought that was great. And then, you know, after probably five years of that, I smoked a picanha. And, you know, like it was two and a half pounds of picanha should take two and a half hours to three hours. It was done in about 55 minutes. And I'm like, this is too hot. Like it's great and it's cool, but it's too hot. And at that point I got a Traeger and that has been amazing. Like, I love it so much. It is perfect. It's awesome. It is easy. So I love my Traeger. And then I have a Blackstone flat iron griddle as well, yep. um, which is so fun to play with also. So that, that's my, that's kind of my grill situation. Yeah, we, I, I have the pit barrel and uh, I, I always, I, I tell this story a lot, but um, one time I was making ribs and unfortunately I didn't have them hooked high enough on the bone and they were tender and I decided, okay, I'm going to keep them going. So I'll run in, you know, I was all smoky. I'll take a shower, come out. It was the end of the cook. I came outside billowing smoke, which should not be at the end of the cook. And I opened the lid and through the smoke, I see the hook with a tiny bit of meat on the hook. The ribs had fallen in and it was I was trying to make a bunch of ribs because we were having family. They were all in the fire and it was scorched, 
earth, scorched ribs, but <laughs> it was bad. So, but I love my pit barrel. I just, you know, had to made made <laughs> made that costly mistake. So, uh, Picanha ribs. Uh, have you ever done a, a brisket? Any any anything unusual? I've done a bunch of brisket. Uh, actually, I think the last time. So usually I did brisket like everyone else, two twenty five, eight hours, nine hours. The last time I did brisket, I contacted Doug just for some tips or whatever. Because when he did one, we did a we did a cook together on Instagram Live, and his looked like something I had never made. So I think what I ended up doing was smoking it for like seventeen hours, but at like one eighty five. Yeah, and it made all the difference. And I will never do it at two twenty five again. I mean, it was it was just like you know, like the Instagram videos you squeeze and the juice comes out. Like it was. Mm-hmm. Of course, meat, meat abuse, hashtag meat abuse. <laughs> um, so I'll do I'll do brisket. I'll do pork shoulder, uh, which I which I really like. And now that I've sort of realized that you can pour the, the juice back in, that's gotten much better. This past weekend, we made pork belly burn and lollipops. Oh, nice. right. Yeah, nice. you, you, you showed because me some pictures. Kids were eating and kids love lollipops and they were so ridiculous and amazing i was like in love wow Wow. it sounds good you know ian we had on nick mangold bringing it up to to football a little bit we had nick mangold who has his own line of sauces now i think he's got two what what are they called the bearded one or something Mm -hmm. that and they're good they're 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 actually they're, they're very good are they actually yeah what, say that again. It's listen. Are they actually? Because like yeah. I'm sort of like you know everyone now. Nick knows a lot about eating, and yeah. I, I would trust him to eat well. Um, but you never know. It's sort of like celebrity barbecue sauce. But that's good to hear. They're actually. It's good. good yeah. It's yeah. called Mango Seventy Four BBQ Sauce. Yes. Okay. Seventy Four being his number. Yes. And there's a picture of him with the beard. Right. I know they sell them. I think at Ace. At, the, at uh, Ace, definitely. Yeah. One's a little has a little heat to it. One's a little sweet or sweet with a little heat. Yeah, it's just amazing who who, you know, the, the crossover, you know, we, we get we'll get baseball players who perfect example, Greg Luzinski, uh, Bulls Barbecue at um, Citizens Bank Park. He makes his own sauce and he's very involved with the with with Bulls Barbecue there. So it's the, the crossovers. It's it's cool. You want to know my my favorite experience with that? So, you know, when I was in Boston, I don't think I was on Instagram. I might've been just starting Instagram when I think Instagram would just got started. It was, it was like 2010 and 11 and 12. It was definitely on Twitter. And I would sometimes post pictures of, you know, it was before people just posted pictures on Instagram. So I'd post, you know, rib pictures on Twitter. And at some point Vince Wilfork pulls me aside in the locker room and is like, I see you smoke meat. Like, yeah, I do. And he's like, you know, you need to try my rub. I'm like, actually, <laughs> yes. So he gave me a mason jar like this big of his rub. And it was fantastic. It was, you know, I would say like sweet heat, you know, and I, you know, it could last forever. I used it for more than a year, used all of it. Uh, it was awesome. I mean, it was, it was, and Vince knew what he was doing. He really did. Well, you're going out of town a lot. So did you have to, to kind of drag uh, your wife is Leah, right? Yes. Right. Did you have to drag her into cooking the barbecue and, and how comfortable is she? Or she, she, she was absolutely ready to do it. Yeah. 
she is more than ready to do it. Awesome. It's, it's really quite ridiculous. So like, (laughs) you know, I love to barbecue. I love to smoke. I love to grill. I do all the steaks. I do a lot of things. And then like, there's been a couple times when she's had to help me prepare. Like when we did our, when we did our Instagram live, yes. Um, she you- had to do some of the things to prepare because I was at an owner's meeting in New York. And then what happened was she started to get into it a little bit. And if there's one <laughs> thing about my wife is that she has a method for everything. And when I mean everything, I mean literally everything. I will like set my toothbrush down and she'll be like, why do you do it like that? Have you ever thought about just doing it this way? And like, usually it's like an efficiency expert. Usually she'll be right. And so she really has gotten into it. So she will, she'll trim the meat. If I, if I don't do it first, she'll put the rub on. She, she gets very involved and has a very big say in what we do. And so like, it's fine because everything turns out great. What started to happen is she's starting to get some of the credit. Oh, I'm not so sure about that. Not at the one, block parties. That's not good. I mean, that's it's not ridiculous. Good. And there was one time on the, I sort of got surprised on the Pat McAfee show because apparently my wife had, while I was working right here in my office on Sunday morning, she had shoveled out uh, the area in front of the grill and started the ribs. And she made the mistake of posting it on social media. <laughs> you guys had a real good time with that one. Real good time. <laughs> that's yeah, very I, funny. Yeah, that's I, I it's funny because my my wife will do a lot of preparation of the food, but I put it on the fire and all the compliments come. Wow. You know, you Leonard, you really this is this is good. <laughs> all I did was just put it outside on the grill. Just keep saying thanks. Appreciate it. it exactly. <laughs> that's one of my favorite things about smoking is like, I mean, you guys know, like it's there is an art to it, but it's not like. You have to make good decisions, but it's not a lot of like hard work, but man, you get credit for it, which is great. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Watching the, watching the grill and the fire is a lot of hard work. That's why you need a little brown water with you, you know, so you can relax, you know, after <laughs> can working from so time hard to time, yes. with, with, with the grill. So I know. Um, I saw, oh, go ahead. Jeff. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. I know sometimes I have uh, the tray going and the pit barrel going. So I have a couple of, a uh, couple of things going at the same time and, you know, trying to work each one of them. Any any uh, any stories on working more than one? I would say the the best story I have is not about working more than one, but it's sort of in that wheelhouse, right? Because generally, when we have the blackstone, the the flat iron, that's like a separate dinner. Because you know we'll do like cheesesteaks or we'll do smash burgers, something like right. that. Right. So my most memorable scurrying to work the Traeger moment was uh, we actually were doing brisket, and the I didn't do a great job of planning when it was going to be done. It was kind of one of my early ones. Right. And so we were having people over on like Saturday and this was Friday and it was supposed to be done for some reason, Friday at like nine o'clock. Okay. And so we go to our beach club and I'm watching on the phone and nothing is happening and the grill is off. And I'm like, Oh my God, everyone's coming. And like, you stop cooking in the middle. Like, what are the ramifications of stopping cooking a brisket in the middle? Like, I don't know. Do I need to start over? I'm like freaking out and it's all ridiculous. But then I'm like, I can't leave because it was like, you know, some like packed holiday or something there. We couldn't leave our parking space. So I'm like, this is a disaster. I'm going to get home. It's going to be half cooked. I'm going to have to throw it out and start again. And it's going to be terrible. So we get home and we're just like, 
this is bad. Like, let's check it. And then the Wi-Fi worked and it was like 196. Oh, perfect. We're like, what? It turns out that there just was no Wi-Fi where we were. So it just didn't register. (laughs) We were freaking out and yelling at each other. The brisket was cooking perfectly. And we're like, job well done. Here we go. Perfect timing. You must have been on a golf course or something out in the middle of nowhere. Because you you do like to golf. And I I see you you posting. Seems like you've played some really nice courses lately, too. Yeah. I mean, it is. I would say my what I like to do is very simple. Right. Like I like the Mets. I like to smoke. uh, I like to play golf. And I like my family. Right. Like there's work, which I really, really love. But when I'm not working, that's what I like to do. So I make sure I do it as absolutely much as humanly possible. So like there'll be some weeks when I'm not working where I'll play five times. I went to Kiowa on a golf trip. My first one in 10 years. I played the ocean course, which was amazing. Uh, I played Wingfoot on Monday. I'm going down to play Congressional next week. There's, you know, a lot of work that goes into a year, but this time when I just get to play golf, man, it is, it is just awesome. You, you posted on, uh, I saw something on Twitter. You mentioned, you said Carolina barbecue is a strong number three for you behind Texas and Kansas city. So what is your favorite? My favorite barbecue of all time is pecan lodge in Dallas. Wow. Um, it is, for those who have not been, it is ridiculous. We first went there when it was a stand in the farmer's market. It was just two people, boss lady and her husband, and just two people making barbecue. And it was so good to be lines for three hours. And then finally, they got a restaurant in Deep Ellum, and we would go visit them. And it was where I learned that beef rib is the greatest thing on earth. Um, oh, I also smoke beef rib, by the way. Um, beef rib is the greatest thing on earth. I learned there. So- I love Texas barbecue. It is just, it is just awesome. I would say Kansas city is, is also excellent. Probably my strong number two. And you know, the draft is there next year. So there is a decent chance that I'll be at Oklahoma Joe's or whatever they call it now. You know, it's like a gas station, but it's the most amazing burn ends you've ever had. They serve that there. Uh, And man, that is like, and there's other good places. There's gates. So Arthur Bryant, just some good places, but. The former Oklahoma Joe's is number one for me in Kansas City. Um, and then Carolina, I also really like the sort of mustardy, vinegary based, not for everyone, but I really do appreciate it. Yeah, the I, actually, I think that's a former Oklahoma Joe's. It's it's Oklahoma Joe's former partner, Jeff Stay, who actually has won the American Royal before. So he's a former competitor as well. The guy that's that runs so that. So that, yeah, former competitors make great chefs most of the time at, at restaurant, you know, take Ernest Cervantes and, you know, then burnt bean. And, you know, so, so anyway, yeah, that's uh yeah, he's, he's, he's a hall of fame member too. Barbecue hall of fame member, the owner, the owner of that Jeff state. Wow. Not surprising. Not surprising. Fire, firehouse five, I think was his competition name, uh, team name. Yeah. And Doug Shining's going to be a future restaurant tour. Cause he's a championship uh, competitor. No, right. no, that takes, you know, that's taking a passion and making it work. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know if I want to go, go that far. So tell me about the socks. I've seen you several times. You post, you know, pictures of your socks. I think last time you had maybe had Oreos on or something like that. Uh, is this kind of your thing on, on TV, you know, being on TV and, and stuff you you're known for this. 
Yeah, one of the things I've realized is that if you do something really stupid but with a lot of confidence, people are okay with it. Um, <laughs> so I got to a point at one point, like two years ago, when I was looking for socks to wear, and the only thing I could find was like that I that I actually liked. I think it was the right color was SpongeBob. I think that's where it started. I got I'd gotten a free pair of SpongeBob socks from Nickelodeon. I wear SpongeBob. I happen to take a picture of it, and everybody went crazy. I'm like, really? So yeah, so I've started like talking to some sock companies and they started sending some socks. I have some of the most ridiculous socks. They did a little sock competition during the draft where people got to pick what socks they wore. Hulk Hogan was one. Pez, I believe, uh, was another. I think there was a Harry Potter in there as well. I mean, it's, it's great because like there's nothing too dumb. People seem to get a kick out of it. You know, like I went to an event last night. I wore Oreo socks. Everyone's like, those are great socks. I'm like, they sure are. Ghostbusters, another one. It's great. It's like your counterpoint on, on, on baseball. Ken Rosenthal's notes for his uh, bow ties. Bow ties. Yeah. He's always on wearing different bow ties. Yes. He should have a barbecue bow tie. <laughs> I have well, a we barbecue text- tie and yeah, yeah. socks and, and a shirt. They, they, you, they put it on everything. I need to get some of those. Really and what was the GGDB or something like that? I think you had on your shoes. Is that, was that a type of shoe? Or oh, I no. That, yeah, those are my, those are my golden goose shoes that my wife made me buy. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. We got them for the Derby. They're expensive. She told me oh, they're yeah. really cool. So tell us about your Derby. It seems like you go to the Derby every year. I saw your yeah. picture of your family this year. Yeah. Well, we took my family to the Preakness. We've kind of oh. like, so when we were going on our, uh, getting ready for our 10th anniversary, we were thinking of things to do and we both wanted to go to the Kentucky Derby. So we're like, all right, bucket list, go to the Derby. Um, we met up with um, this buddy. We, this guy we became friends with who has sort of like a, you know, like a VIP experience, this guy, Joey Wagner, who's just the greatest guy ever at Louisville guy and got some good seats, met up with a good crew, really good crew and had the greatest time. And on the flight back, we were like, so next year, like, of course. And then, you know, COVID happened. And then, so it was, it was during the fall. And I think no, no one in the stands at that point. Then the next year, for some ridiculous reason, the draft and the Kentucky Derby were on the same date. So, we, so I couldn't go. So I'm like, this is literally the worst. Finally, this year, <laughs> we could go again, which was this year, just an incredible, incredible experience. We were in a suite on the finish line. It was like baller. Uh, and I've already booked my plane tickets for next year. So I'll be going then as well. Nice. Fantastic. Nice. Yes. Now, Ian, you covered you covered the Patriots for three years, right? Yes. So how, how's the barbecue in New England? There was one place, I think, that was pretty good. Uh, but it was good, though, because my ribs would get really like an incredible uh, response because people just weren't used to it. I think now there's probably a few more. Mm-hmm. It's like in my town, like in, you know, in Westchester, there's not a lot of barbecue, you know, and there was one place called Q, like a couple of towns over that closed, you know, in Brooklyn, there's good barbecue. They're like legitimately like actually good barbecue. In sure. Um, but that's very far away from us. So I've had to make my own, which has been not bad, actually. Yeah. There's Morgan's in Brooklyn, uh, but there's. Uh, hometown barbecue is a hometown. That's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. Uh, which had a smoked pastrami, I believe, which was just pastrami, smoked pastrami bacon. I think it was like just ridiculous. Yum. Great place. 
Yeah. Is that Billy Durney's place, Hometown Barbecue? I think it might be. I'm I think not... so, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. We we just were at we were at an event at Pig Beach, Queens location. They had a, a big event and Tuffy Stone was there and I I don't know. I it was just a bunch of uh you know, well-known pitmasters. And uh I, I know Billy Durney was there. I think and and uh the, the food was incredible. These guys were just they they all had their signature dishes. It was unreal what these guys were making and just and I've never been to I gotta get to one of those. I've never been actually. Like well, next year, like yeah. Well, there was football going on at this time, Jeff. It was no, and 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 April is. Uh, yeah, yeah. So sure. right, so football's over. Where so uh, it's in Astoria, Queens, called Pig Beach. What? I need to start going. I didn't even know about it. Yeah. Maybe I'll get the invitation next time. Yeah, well, we we have to make sure he does. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Make sure I yeah. know about it. Yeah. yeah. We got a. We got. Yeah. It's uh. It was a fundraiser. Mitchner uh, is his last name. Why yeah, can Jeff. I remember? Yeah, I think it is a Jeff Mitchner. Jeff Mitchner. Yeah. Was a pit master who who passed away very young. Left a um, wife and and, and his uh, young child, and they did it once, and then uh, it seems like this is what everybody always said. Then COVID happened. And then they, for two years, they didn't do it. And then, uh, and they had it this year. And now I think they're, they're, they're going to make it an annual event. It was yeah. Yeah. seeing these pit masters come together for this was just, was, was so heartwarming to see yep. them from all over the country. They, they just yeah. flew in on their own dime exactly, and it was great. Ian, uh, I know we only have a few minutes left for you. I want to ask you a couple of football questions if you don't mind. First of all, how, how did you get started with, with being an NFL insider? really by accident kind of randomly like i was i was a newspaper reporter covered the uh covered mississippi state for the clarion ledger covered alabama for the birmingham news um covered the patriots for the boston herald and i was i was good like i was making a good living i love my job i was you know hoping to be some sort of a magazine writer maybe a columnist one day things were going good and at the super bowl in you know after the 2012 season uh it was Patriots Giants number two. Uh, this guy called me who I'd known a little bit, and I'd done like a couple guest appearances in the NFL network, just to have a local beat writer on to talk about the team, nothing much, right? And he was like, you know, would you mind meeting with some bosses from NFL Network? I'm like, no problem. So I I go into a conference room, I'm wearing like jeans and a sweater, you know, sit down and they introduce themselves and they fire questions at me for like an hour about, you know, how'd you do this? How'd you do that? Well, went to this reporting, all, all sorts of things. And at the end of an hour, they say like, all right, well, we've talked long enough. Do you have any questions for us? And I was like, yeah, what am I doing here? And they're like, <laughs> oh, well, you know, we're looking at hiring some TV reporters and you're one of the guys we're looking at. I'm like, well, I don't know anything about TV. They said, that's okay. We'll teach you. And for the right opportunity, you know, would you move to Dallas? And I was like, yeah. For the right opportunity, I would. And they're like, okay, great. And then we said goodbye. And I called my wife. I'm like, I don't know what's going on, but something happened. And <laughs> that felt really good. And I think we might have to move to Dallas. He's <laughs> like, get out of here. Like, they talked to a lot of people. I'm like, I know, I know, I know. I was like, but something happened. And I, anyway, I think we're going to get a new job. And she's like, you need to calm down, whatever. So a month later, they called me, offered me a job. Moved to Dallas to be our Dallas Bureau reporter, became our insider like a year later, and then uh, moved to New York a little bit after that. And 
that's kind of, that was, you know, I've been at NFL Network for 10 years. Um, and it's really been awesome. And I have a question. Where in New York, Len and I are on Long Island. I know Doug's in, in, in Texas. Our football teams here in New York have not been well the last couple of years. But the Jets have the longest playoff, playoff drought in, in the NFL for such a long time. Any, uh, any thoughts that you can share with us how the Jets are going to do this season? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a critical season for the Jets. Um, they spent a lot of money in free agency. They've had a couple really solid drafts. You know, the thought is that this draft will be really, really good for them. I mean, they got, you know, four guys in the top 35 or six, whatever it is, who are first round talents, right? But it's about the quarterback. It's always about the quarterback. And if Zach Wilson is good enough, they'll be a good team. You know, maybe they win seven games, eight games, you know, make like a little leap. If he is not good enough, then they're going to have to figure it out. And that then it gets really, really tough. Mm-hmm. So it's a critical year. The roster is better. They got talented players all around. It's just is the quarterback going to be good enough? That's really going to determine their season. Right. Right. I, I know watching the Jets over the years, they've had Mark Sanchez. Then they had uh, Darno. And it's like every three years, they, they just wash out a new quarterback. They, I, I, look, I'm not a no, I'm no football expert, but, it's, you know, they're not letting these guys grow, I guess. Is it, is, do they, are they impatient? No, I think it's just they haven't hit the right one yet. Um, and, you know, because you look at what guys have done after they left, they have not not been starting quarterbacks or not played well enough, right? Sanchez didn't, you know, Sam Darnold and uh, Carolina still trying to find his footing. So, you know, it's been it's been tough. Hopefully this time they got the right one. And if they did, they got no more issues. Mm-hmm. Do you think the Giants have the right one? And uh, is it Daniel Jones? Daniel uh, Jones. Jones. Yeah. From uh, well, yeah. I mean, they're, they're you know, sticking with him for for uh, it's five know. years now. Yeah. Well, they're sticking with him, but they made sure to leave themselves some outs, right? Like they're sticking with him, but they didn't pick up his fifth year option. So uh-huh. he's in a final year of his contract, mm. it's not going to be like Carolina and Sam Darnold, where you know they're on the hook for eighteen million the next year. Mm. It's a make or break year, and either he will be good enough. Or it won't be. And if he's not, then they will move on and be okay and try to find a new one with, you know, multiple draft picks. If he is, then they got no more issues and they're good to go, just like the Jets. I've got a fantasy question if I can. I've got a yeah, I'm go in ahead. a keeper league and one person. I've got Burrow, Dalvin Cook, Kamara, and Debo. I always tr- tend to go with running backs, but so you got. Dalvin, Dalvin Cook, Kamara, of, of yeah. New I mean, Orleans. I would say it's tough because I would, of course, I'm trained to say quarterback, but in fantasy, yeah. it's not like that. In fantasy, it's really about finding the hot running back. You know, the Kamara situation is interesting because there is a possibility he's suspended. Oh, right. So, Strike. yeah. So he there was an alleged assault. That oh, oh, right. You're right Oval. about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right. you know that. You know, you'll you'll probably my guess is you'll know the answer to that before your draft. You know, Dalvin Cook's got a new new offensive coordinator, new head coach. You know, that would be kind of where I would lean. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, Joe Burrow, I think, is going to have another fantastic year. So tough for me to I don't know. That's that's he, tough. he's got to, he's got to look as uh, play the part as 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 good as he looks, you know, and uh, with his his Terrell Owens type outfit. So, um, pre we are greatly appreciate you being on the show. I've got one final question before you vanish and get out of here. 
we had texted before the Traeger event and I never saw, uh, had seen vanishing messages before. A lot of your insider tips, are they kind of that way that you're getting a vanishing message so that there's no, there's no trace of uh, someone letting you know about this? Because I had never yeah. seen it. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's multiple ways to do it. You can be on signal, you can do vanishing messages and you don't really need to, cause I'm not telling anyone people like to be careful. And I'm like, you know what? Being careful is absolutely fine. So whatever makes the people who give me the secret stuff feel comfortable, I'm good for that. Cool. Vanishing messages. That's yes. I'd never <laughs> seen it before. Wow. And he sent me some message. I'm like, Hey, that message is gone. <laughs> <laughs> this message will self-destruct. Exactly. 30 it's seconds. just barbecue Ian. it's just barbecue. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ian, we thank you very much for joining us. The NFL season starts in, you know, I guess uh, two months, I guess, in early September. Well, I mean, I start going around for training camps it's in August, late right? July. Early July. July. So it always starts earlier than you think. I'll be on the road. I'll be eating out of hotel restaurants and airports soon enough and going all around to training camp. So it'll be a lot of fun. And I'm 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 enjoying the summer, but I'm looking forward to that as well. Well, thank you very much. Go on the road, eat, eat a lot of barbecue, and <laughs> you bring and some bring some recipes home. <laughs> yeah. There you go. And right. thank you for being on baseball and barbecue. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you guys so much for having me. I, I appreciate you having me on. Have a great thank, night. Thank you. Sir. Thank you. And we want to thank Ian Rappaport for coming on the show and thanks Doug for, for making the connection with us. We thank him very much and enjoyed him being part of the interview as well. Jeff, I spoke too, too much in, in the last segment. So all I'm going to say is barbecuebuddha.com. Enter All Star 15, save 15% on your order. Through July 16th only. Right. Go to baseballbbq.com. Get yourself some beautiful grilling tools and accessories. And if Go you want ahead. to order the book by uh, by Terrence Moore, he's part of the base the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, and you mm-hmm. can order the book from uh, from a link right there. And go to Cutting Edge Firewood for their great firewood. Yeah, I'm not good at ranting. I guess I just don't have it. That was a, that was a terrible rant. It was awful, and, and I'm sorry. I apologize to our audience. But I think the two great guests that we had made made up for the, the crappy rant by the host. Well, you know, you got to do more than apologize. I think you have to grovel. Please, please forgive me. <laughs> Take us out. <laughs> All right. We're going to end episode 141 by saying thank you to all of you. Thank you, Terrence Moore. Thank you, Ian Rappaport. Thank you, Doug Scheiding. Thank you, Jeff Cohen, for putting up with me. And thank you to the musician, Dave Dresser, the poet, Shel Kakovsky, and their beautiful song, Baseball Always Brings You Home. See you next time. <laughs>